Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 54, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon. My name is Christopher John Francis Boone. I live at 36 Randolph Street, Swindon. I like maths, outer space, looking after Toby, and I see everything. on the way to school, we passed four red cars in a row. So today is a good day. I'm going to find out who really killed the dog. Someone killed a dog with a fork. Jesus Christ. A garden fork. Oh. Is this train going to London? Come on, Christopher. Touch my hand. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is a mystery podcast because we don't know what's going to happen. We have questions. We may not answer those questions. It's a big old <laughs> it's, it's a big old mystery, folks. It might be a funny podcast. Who knows? But tune in because we're going to be looking at this piece of literature and we're going to discuss it and we're going to decide whether or not it is required reading. So here I am, Stella, leading us through, through this particular piece of literature. And with me is, let's see here. Oh, you, you know what? I think you could be Siobhan. Siobhan, everybody <laughs> loves Siobhan, and she is probably the, one of the best advocates that we have in that particular book. So the Siobhan to my occasional uh, Christopher, maybe, <laughs> or you could have been Toby. You could have been my Toby, but here he is, my right-hand man, Tom Panarese. Hey, how hey, are I'm you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, we were talking about some heavy things before the show, <laughs> but this and this book, mm -hmm. I feel like teeters on the edge of being a heavy book and being a lighter book, which yeah. we certainly want to talk about. But I, I think it'll it'll be a, a great discussion to have. But yeah, I'm just happy to be able to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. This is always a, this. I mean, I look forward to this every month, and uh, and we actually have seen each other recently too, which was kind of nice. I think it was the first time we've seen each other since uh, Professor Chiefskate's birthday, back in like was it November, December? So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, when we gave him a little FaceTime, yeah. ding ding. And, yeah. and we had uh, we had coffee, so 
it was kind of nice. So, but no, it was always, <laughs> this is always good. We're looking forward to this. So, absolutely. Yes, even though I think we're both, it's just this has been a week. So it's just been, you know, one of those usually like spring break was last week. So this week it's just like, oh, now I'm more tired than I ever was. So there. You go. Yeah. And I had some big life decisions to make this week, so that that also wore me out a bit. But but yeah, here we are. And I full disclosured Tom, and I said, Tom, just so you know, I am watching <laughs> some NWSL Challenge Cup. Uh, my little phone is going, but it's muted. And I said, if it ever becomes a, discre- a distraction, I'll just turn it off. But I have basically proven Shag Shagalicious correct that I do other things while I'm podcasting but <laughs> it's funny because the sound was on when i popped on and tom's like uh, are you watching a soccer game right now I'm like how'd you know and it just it proved that tom you know me pretty well i'd say we actually are good yeah. friends <laughs> you're like i just know you only watch soccer and you watch women's soccer i'm like you're right so anyways yeah so here we are yeah Oh boy. Well, I guess uh, we'll get into it. Yeah. I uh, I don't know what other sort of introductions. I mean, we could do some heavy introductions, but <laughs> with what's currently going on in the world, but it might be obsolete once this episode. This comes is out. true. So just know that Tom and I are. <laughs> yeah, you should go back and listen to our March episode, and not the month, but maybe. March oh, the the John itself. Lewis uh, graphic. Yeah, novel, the John yes. Lewis. <laughs> Maybe that would be time yeah. to re- refresh on that with everything yes. that's going on. But yes. yeah, so we are talking curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, and I don't know what your book looks like, but mine has a nice. It's or well, it's a red, mm-hmm. which makes sense, and it's got a cutout, and it's a black background but the cutout is an upside down poodle do you have this mine is, that your is uh it is red it's a hard cover there's no cutout the um the poodle is uh embossed on the on the cover so and it has today's book club stamped on the front of it so oh yeah. well it is in fact today's uh, book yes I, I i took this out of and it is very very faded i got this out of the school library so. Okay. Oh, so oh wow. Well, I'm glad that your school yes, library has yes. it. Yes. I thought I had a copy and I guess I must have lent it to somebody years ago. Uh-oh. So, cuz I had a copy at one point. Um yeah. and yeah, so uh, I do not anymore. So yes, they have it. And I have to bring it back. They didn't know I took it. So. <laughs> The librarian uh, wasn't there and the testing coordinator was. They had just wrapped up SOL testing and uh, I just kind of went over the shelf I'm like I'll bring it back. <laughs> he was just like, don't worry about it. Oh, boy. So what is, I guess we kind of, t- we, we touched upon it just that you mm-hmm. used to have it potentially and you lent it out to somebody, yes. so it's good enough to lend. What is your history with this book? Um, I first read this in 2005, 2006-ish, I think. Um, uh, we had a, a bunch of friends of uh, my wife's uh, who she worked with, and they're friends of ours had a book club that got together once a month. And this was one of the selections that somebody made. So we got together at uh, two friends of ours out in um, Gordonsville or wherever they were living at the time and uh, sat around and, and, and had a book club about this. I also have seen um, part of the play version of this because the school where I teach at put this on a couple years ago as uh, their fall play, I believe. 
so they did like a little showcase during the school day where they did various scenes from the play uh, as a preview for uh, for the full performances and stuff like that. So yeah, so I've uh, so I've known this book for a while, but this is the second time I've read it. This yeah, this is the second time that I have read it as well. It was on my Rory Gilmore's reading list, which by the way is done. I finished it. <laughs> It took me ten and a half years, uh, uh, but I'm finished. And this was one of, I would say, it was probably near the beginning of the the list, maybe that I was working on it. I think in in the beginning I was trying to go alphabetical, but once you have when you have several Austins mm. on the list, it kind of is hard to consistently read Austin after Austin after Austin. So I think I was hopping around. So yeah, I. I can imagine that would get really, really. <laughs> it was I worse, mean... I would say, with Dickens, but because oh, because there were several Dickens on there, I was like, oh man, this is yeah. really rough. I don't know if I'll make it, but uh, I didn't. But anyways, you know, that's a podcast for another time. So I feel like early on, so maybe 2010 through 2011, reading this and not really, I not knowing anything about it because that was the the blessing and the curse of the Rory Gilmore's reading list is that I'm just pulling them off the shelf. I'm not looking up like you normally do with books that you hear about online or go to the library and read a blurb on the back or interior cover. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, well, it's on the list. I've got to read it. So I had no idea going into it and, and then being, well, we'll see, being surprised at it, of course. And I also saw the play on Broadway, so that must have been probably 2014. I'll talk a bit about that. But that was a Christmas venture that I took with my parents. We saw the Rockettes. We saw uh, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, which was a musical. And then we we saw The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And I, I don't... I highly recommend seeing it. I guess it would depend on how it was staged, whatever production you're seeing, because it very much is a full, all senses experience. Because mm. when he's in the train station, or even the first scene with the dog, but especially the train station, the lights and the sounds, like if you if you had epilepsy this would not be the play mm-hmm. for you and i'm not being oh, okay. like just like honestly you would go into a fit just because they make you feel what christopher is feeling when he's like really having a tough time at the ladder well his journey to get to london uh, just with the, the noises and everything but just really brilliantly staged and the things they do with the train and and just the yeah it was great so I'll just say that. And then, of course, reading it this time, I, I knew I was going to bring it on this show. I just wasn't sure when. So I figured, well, now's now's the time to do it. So here we All go. Right. So I guess cool. we'll talk about Mr. Haddon himself and also the book. And I have several quotes just about the main character himself. He mm-hmm. is said to have autism and then Haddon has said he probably had Asperger's and then you know other things are there so just some idea to give you maybe a, a more well-rounded picture of who mm-hmm. Christopher is and and disability theory as someone I, I quoted someone there as well but also you know Haddon is not a medical professional so I think mm-hmm. We can only take his word so far, and I, I think maybe just treat Christopher as this unique individual without necessarily typing him, but just see that he experiences the world in, in a different way. 
Okay, so Mark Haddon was born on, well, do we really need to know? But yes, he was born in Northampton, England, and he was educated at Uppingham School and Merton College, Oxford, where he studied English. He completed an MA in English Literature at the University of Edinburgh. Since then, Haddon wrote his first children's book, Gilbert's Gobstopper, in 87. And this was followed by many other children's books, which were often self-illustrated. So this is key, I think, that his history is children's book and, and books, and I'll get back to that. He's also known for his series of Agent Z books. One of them was made into a children's BBC sitcom, and he has written screenplays for the television adaptation of Raymond Briggs' story Fungus and the Boogeyman, <laughs> which is interesting, and some other television dramas as well. So with this, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime in 2003, he won the Whitbread Book of the Year Award in the novels rather than the children's books category, and he also won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize in the Best First Book category as The Curious Incident was considered his first written for adults, yet he also won the, Chil the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize, a once-in-a-lifetime award judged by a panel of children's writers. It was also listed for the 2003 Booker Prize. So it, it follows, as we will see, the... Christopher John Francis Boone, who's a 15 and, I can't remember, he says like 15 and 5 months or something like that, you're a boy, and he at least says that he is autistic in, in the book. And in an interview at Pals.com, Haddon claimed that this was the first book that he wrote intentionally for an adult audience, but he was surprised when his publisher suggested marketing it to both adult and child audiences. And it's been very successful with both, actually. And his, uh, he later produces another novel called A Spot of Bother. He wrote on his blog that it is not a book about Asperger's. If anything, it's a novel about difference, about being an outsider, about seeing the world in a surprising and revealing way. The book is not specifically about any specific disorder. And that he, Haddon, is not an expert on the author autistic spectrum or Asperger syndrome and I think even in his little biography because I wonder if he did this on purpose just so that people you know how we always question people and their CVs or why why do you have experience with this as a young man Haddon worked with autistic individuals which I found really interesting that he slipped that in there in the the beginning but at least to show that he's not he is an outsider, but he's not a complete outsider. That's just writing about like what he thinks. That he, at least he had experience with some autistic uh, people. So the book uses prime numbers to number the chapters, which is really original, I thought, rather than the conventional successive numbers. Originally in English, it has been translated into 36 additional languages. And in 2003, there was an interview with NPR's Terry Gross, we all know her, on her program Fresh Air. And this is what Haddon said about Christopher. So here, here we go, trying to diagnose him. If he were diagnosed, he would be diagnosed as having Asperger's syndrome, which is a form of autism. I suppose you'd call it high-function autism, in that he can't function on, you know, a day-to-day -day basis in a kind of rudimentary way. But he has a serious difficulty with life in that he really doesn't empathize with other human beings. He can't read their faces. He can't put them himself in their shoes and he can't understand anything more than the literal meaning of whatever said to him although I'm very careful in the book not to actually use the word Asperger's or autism because I don't want him to be what doesn't he say 
<laughs> I have autism. Um, I'm going to have to find that page, but I'm pretty sure he does. So I, at least he says it once. I'm not just making that up, right? Thomas. Sorry, um, I was <laughs> muted. Um, I can't, I could have sworn it's mentioned at least once yeah, by I thought somebody. Yeah, in the when he's like introducing himself and all of the. Yeah. Um... I'm not sure. I am not finding it. I mean, I'm skimming, yeah. but I'm not finding it. So. I want to say you're right, yeah. but but I'm not entirely sure. He, in the very least, he does not make a point of it. You know, it's if it's said once, it's said once, but yeah. it's not repeated to the point where it's emphasized. Mm-hmm. You know, he's very show don't tell about who this who Christopher is. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will move on from that. But I was pretty sure. But anyways, let's see. Now I have to get back to this block quote here. Da, 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 da. Okay, so doesn't use these words. I guess we'll take his word for it, but I really thought I remembered. Because I don't want him labeled, and because, as with most people who have a disability, I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing about him. And as a good friend of mine said after reading the book, a friend who is himself a mathematician, it's not a novel about a boy who has Asperger's syndrome. It's a novel about a young mathematician who has some strange behavioral problems. And I think that's right. I have to say, honestly, that I did more research about the London Underground and the inside of Swindon railway station where some of the novel takes place than I did about Asperger's syndrome. I gave him kind of nine or ten rules that he would live his life by, and then I didn't read any more about Asperger's because I think there is no typical person who has Asperger's syndrome, and they're as large and diverse a group of people as any other group in society. And the important thing is that I did a lot of imagining, that I did a lot of putting myself into his shoes and trying to make him come alive as a human being, rather than getting him right, whatever that might mean. Haddon states on his website that although he had read a handful of newspaper and magazine articles about or by people with Asperger's and autism in preparation for writing the book, he knows very little about these and that Christopher Boone is inspired by two different people. According to Haddon, none of these people can be labeled as having a disability. He adds that he slightly regrets that the term Asperger's syndrome appeared on the cover of his novel. It's not on mine, but I did see other covers when I was preparing the podcast episode cover of that. Is that on your cover? I see the, there, there's a review on the back where Oliver Sacks says uh, a beautiful autism novel has been overdue and this is it. Okay. In the book jacket, you know, and flip it over to the inside inside flap, um, there's the Christopher is autistic. Although gifted with a superbly logical brain, Christopher is autistic. Everyday interactions and admonishments may have little for him. So the publisher, at the very least, decided to uh, emphasize that, at least in a couple of places. Mm-hmm. Do you think – I mean, I'm going to ask a question even though we're we're right in the middle of <laughs> – no, 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 of no. this right here but does it help you I'll, I'll give my personal my personal take on this and then i'll ask you just so you know like i'm not trying to call you out or anything but for me when because it was a bit, bit disorienting in the beginning just how he was writing and then some of the certain things that giving it that name if i did read that you know i have autism or whatever it really centered me and reoriented it myself and then i could really fully put myself in christopher's shoes and i think better engage with the novel whereas if there was no label to it which i know that 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 is i'm really going against what the author said if there is no label Mm -hmm. to it i would almost be 
wasting a lot of my energy trying to figure out what's wrong with him rather than engaging with the novel. Is that just me or do you feel like you sometimes do that as well? You want to figure out who this person is and then once you do, then you can really fully uh, engage yourself and, and become that person almost or be in their shoes throughout the rest of the story. I'm there with you um, whereas uh, where if I just like the just the mere mention of it going in and then it you know it didn't have to be I didn't have to be hit over the head with the yeah. you know the oh, he's autistic <laughs> people didn't need to say that repeatedly for me to get it mm-hmm. but knowing it going in did help me center and that's a for instance like you know I, I hadn't read this in years so I was in like 15 years right so I was reading it and I'm like well where's chapter one <laughs> and then all of a sudden <laughs> then all of a sudden I'm like Oh, and then I realized that I started remembering, like I started remembering things, but I also remember like, you know, um, things that I, in, in my experience here and there with people on the spectrum and, 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 and forgive me for any language that sounds insensitive. I'm trying to, you know, like parse my words correctly, but like behavior or quirks and things like that, mm-hmm. that people may have and the fixation, like fixations and things like that. And prime numbers might, you know, would in his case is one of them. And once I realized he was doing that, I was like, Oh, okay. Um, but you're right. It, it, like I, like I said a, a few minutes ago, um, there's like a show don't tell this about this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, you tell us once, it says it's or, or we're, we're told once going in and we're kind of set up and then uh, you don't need to tell us again. You can just show it to us. And I think I, I, I think that, that that does a really, really good job. So I'm like right there with you. I'm glad I, I knew going in because then I wasn't trying to figure it out or I wasn't looking for confirmation that my assumption was correct. Yeah. And, and I think about because this is for adults as well as children though i feel like maybe more young adult than children that as adults we might have experiences or have had experiences with people on the spectrum i i've certainly taught a couple and Mm -hmm. so i yeah so but as a child or a young adult perhaps who hasn't met anyone like that then they might be like you know what is with this person which maybe they have a a unique perspective that they do just view him as a unique individual who has behavioral problems as, as it's somewhat described. But, but I wonder, you know, kind of the perspective in our experience, our life experiences, I think also helps us. So if I were to read this, you know, way before college, I feel like I would have been like really confused maybe what was going on. Mm. Cause in high school I had no experience with anyone on the spectrum. So no, my, my knowledge of the autism spectrum when I was in high school was probably limited to like the movie rain man oh, you know? yeah. and then stuff like that. I mean, it was not, I, th- I honestly believe that I think the, I think the phrase and pardon, and I'm only going to use it once. I think the phrase mentally retarded was making its way out of our, out of our system. Mm-hmm. But I think students were still labeled as that. Mm-hmm. On paperwork, um, back when I was in high school, junior high school, especially even when I, definitely when I was in elementary school, but um, but like junior high and high school, but um, you know, special needs or special ed had become a little bit more the um, the way to say, uh, you know, instead of instead of saying, you know, the, the R word there. But I think that had I been younger, when I was younger, had there been someone with autism, the that 
the you know the R word would have been the the descriptor that was used. Mm-hmm. So and I, I you know and I honestly think you know I never and I'm not gonna ask like I have a couple of I have a friend from high school who I've known since we were oh gosh third grade right like we were little kids because we went to elementary school together and I'm and I know he was in special education classes I'm pretty sure he was on he's on the spectrum i I think i think he he has a form of autism but i'm not going to go up and ask him you know what do you have um you know but but so uh, you know i think i've known a couple of people from from my youth who were but i it never um but again like i said it was never we didn't but you know i uh, i didn't grow up learning about what these what what autism spectrum the autism spectrum was is shoot like you know the concept of of adhd technically existed but like you know there's an entire portion of my generation that had we been five years or five years younger than we are would have all been on Ritalin. (laughs) so and we weren't so you know we're i grew up in in one of the last gasps of a very um unprogressive uh part of it you know and i'm the more un- less progressive toward um, mental health and learning disabilities and things like that it was starting to get a little bit better but mm-hmm. we're near where it is now gotcha yeah well i think that was the first time we uh, had a discussion before the discussion even began yeah <laughs> i do want to i do want to point out i do respect him for his irritation yeah at being called to give lectures yeah because there are yeah there are other authors who when they decide to grab a um medical or academic field and use it as a basis of fiction and they become you know it becomes as big as because this novel sold like really really well mm-hmm. and it, it's very popular so the novel becomes very popular and all of a sudden they are they they will they there are authors who have indulged that you know all of a sudden you know they're the expert on this topic because they wrote a novel about it because they did a little bit of research you know you know meanwhile some woman's toiling away as an adjunct professor and is finishing her doctorate and she's like i know like 10 million more things than you yeah. and, and you're getting the lecture so novel splainers <clears throat> or something. I don't even know. <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of Dan Brown, but that's a whole other. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Dan to... Brown writes the Da Vinci Code and Angels, the Demons, and all of a sudden he's like this medieval symbology expert that they're interviewing on like the freaking History Channel. And you're like, you wrote a thriller whose <laughs> twist was who that, that whose twist ripped off the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Like, no. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, I guess we won't be reading any of his novels on this show. Oh, we certainly could, but I don't think we would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that just gets back to our... Back on topic. Yeah, and on, on that, that was certainly the end of it, that he is now thoroughly irritated that the word Asperger's appears on subsequent editions there. In a critical essay on the novel, Vivian Muller, or Muller quotes some praise by experts on disability theory. She says, in his presentation of Christopher's everyday experiences of the society, of the society in which he lives, the narrative offers a rich canvas of experiences for an ethnographic study of this particular cognitive condition, and 
one which places a positive spin on the syndrome. The reader in this instance acts as an ethnographer, invited to see what Mark Austin claims is a quality in autistic lives that is valuable in and of itself. Along similar lines, Alex McClemens, or McClemens writes that Haddon's novel is an ethnographic delight and that Haddon's achievement is to have written a novel that turns on the central character's difference without making that difference a stigmatizing characteristic. Mueller adds that the novel works with a strong sense of the disabled speaking subject, drawing readers into Christopher's cognitive and corporeal space through an incremental layering of his perspectives and reactions. The narrative also bristles with diagrams, maps, drawings, stories, text, which we'll talk about, that informs Christopher's lexicon for mapping meaning in a world of bewildering signs and sounds. She also admires such elements as the digressive stream of connectedness and disconnectedness way in which Christopher writes and thinks, the obsessive focus on minutiae, his musings about why animals behave the way they do, his quasi-philosophizing on death and life and the afterlife, his ambition to be an astronaut. And I find that really interesting about his almost stream of consciousness or connectedness and disconnectedness because that quote that he found that he never understood about, let's see here, I am veined with iron, with silver, and with streaks of common mud. I cannot contract into the firm fist which those clench who do not depend on stimulus. And he says, what does this mean? I do not know, nor does father, nor does Siobhan or Mr. Jevons. I have asked them. It's a quote, apparently, Mark Haddon later says, it's a quote from Virginia Woolf. And I'm like, oh, man, what a person to for Christopher to find a quote from. But anyways, that's just funny. How about the, the stream of consciousness almost and that connection with her? In a survey of children's books which teach about emotional life, Laura Jana wrote, on the one hand, this is a story of how an undeniably quirky teenage boy clings to order, deals with the family crisis, and tries to make sense of the world as he sees it. But it also provides profound insight into a disorder, autism, that leaves those who have it struggling to perceive even the most basic of human emotions. In so doing, the curious incident leaves its readers with a greater appreciation of their own ability to feel, express, and interpret emotions. This mainstream literary success made its way to the top of the New York Times bestseller list for fiction at the same time it was being touted by experts in, in Asperger's syndrome and autism spectrum disorder as an unrivaled fictional depiction of the inner workings of an autistic teenage boy. So praise all around for this guy. A stage adaptation by Simon Stevens and directed by Marion Elliott premiered at the National Theater, which is in England. In 2012, in August, it starred Luke Treadway as Christopher, Nicola Walker as his mother, Judy, Paul Ritter as his father, Ed, Una Stubbs as Mrs. Alexander, and Niyama Cusack as Siobhan. And the production Neve. ran on, what'd you say? Uh, Neve. Really? Yes. Thank you. Okay. okay. And Neve Cusack, wow, the linguistics on that boggles the mind. Neve Cusack as Siobhan. It's wow. Celtic Gaelic. Okay, something well, that Irish. works with the Siobhan for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, crazy. Thank you. I love that. I really do. Okay, the production ran until uh, October you 2012 and was broadcast live to cinemas worldwide on September 6, 2012, through the National Theater Live program. So that could be potentially a way for people to view it but again i just if you could go and see it i would say um go see it and then it opened on broadway at the ethel barrymore theater uh in october 2014 
after beginning previews in September, and it, it was again produced by the Royal National Theater and directed by Elliot. The original Broadway cast included Alex Sharp in his first professional role ever, who ended up winning a Tony, as Christopher Enid Graham as his mother Judy, Ian Barford as his father Ed, and Francesca Faridini as Siobhan. The production is choreographed by Scott Graham and Stephen Hogan. Yeah, just the fact that we're using the word choreograph should give you a sense of like the stuff that is is going on if if you have time thomas well i guess i could could i send you some pictures or at least a link to a site that would have pictures of the production to put on the website is that possible or that'd be too hot no you could you could do that and then uh, i'll make sure that there are some um and if there's anything i could i could grab a picture and then you could always uh, i could always link to it so that you could um yeah you can go see, see the like production. there's this one image where christopher is being he- well christopher and toby are being held up by the rest of the cast as they're like coming together and i'm just like that's it was just so amazing. Okay, yeah. I think. Oh, and sorry, the Broadway production closed in 2016 September after 800 performances. Okay, are we ready? Yes. Okay, so this is the plot synopsis, and thank you Wikipedia for all of that stuff. I think I was, I found it elsewhere too. But anyway, but that was a lot of good information, and I thought hearing from critics as well um, would be helpful. So this plot synopsis comes from. Schmoop, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, God, <laughs> It might be Schmoop. I don't oh. know. <laughs> How ridiculous. Remember when you went to school, and I went to school as well, and the best we could get were those black and yellow covered Cliff cliff notes. Notes. <laughs> That's why I always say I talk to Cliff. I know. It almost makes me sad that all uh, this stuff is online. I've had students put Schmoop into a works cited page. <laughs> And it took everything in my power to write in the comments, you have to be effing kidding me with this. (laughs) Not only that, at least, at least they didn't take, they usually don't take the effort to write out the full citation of Schmoop. It's like, you know, they just put the, they just copy and paste the website URL in as if if, if that's MLA formatted for the works cited page. So first of all, you're doing that with like, you should know how to do this. And, and B, really? Schmoop? Like, no, 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 uh, no, 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 man. no, no, yeah. no. You're lucky okay. I'm not teaching college. No. <laughs> yeah, so on. we're <laughs> – so I did. I feel like I got this from Schmoop, and I will also probably add in some things because as I was reading it, I saw that it was missing some details. So Schmoop. Yeah, I know. So one night, Christopher Boone finds his neighbor's dog dead in her front yard with a pitchfork sticking out of it. Christopher wonders who killed it and decides to write a book in which he tries to figure out, like a mystery, a murder mystery novel. Christopher has a disability unspecified in the book. I I don't know what I'm talking about then. I swear. But anyways, so it makes it difficult for him to understand social norms like body language and other forms of human interaction. He is, however, tremendously good at math and more, I should say, maths and more logic-based skills like writing a crazily detailed daily schedule or drawing intricate maps of places he's only visited once, which, yeah, boggles the mind. Man, it's amazing. Christopher's neighbor, Mrs. Shears, finds him with her now-dead dog, calls the police. (laughs) 
And Christopher has to spend a few hours in a jail cell because the policeman, who is pretty uh, courteous, ends up touching him. And Christopher, that's one, that's a huge thing for Christopher. He does not like to be touched. And so he hits the policeman and bad things obviously happen when you hit policemen. So there you go. So now he's in a jail cell. Eventually his father comes to get him and tells Christopher to not investigate the dog's death any further. So in response, Christopher thinks of all kinds of ways to interpret his father's demand as specifically as possible so he can still do all of his detective work while somehow not disobeying him. He starts asking around the neighborhood to see if anyone knows anything about the dog's death. He decides that since Mr. Shears left his wife two years ago, perhaps he hates her and killed her dog to make her sad. When Christopher's father finds out that he's still investigating and actually has been asking people about the dog, he makes him promise that he'll stop. And Christopher this time promises, and it's a huge deal for Christopher to promise. So now he really can't get out of this. So, of course, Christopher continues, <laughs> unfortunately. He does talk to one of the neighbors, Mrs. Alexander, through, like, manipulation and getting around the rules. And Mrs. Alexander ends up telling him that Christopher's mother and Mr. Shears were doing the sex, I believe is how Christopher refers to it. <laughs> and so they were having an affair before he left Mrs. Shears and... Christopher then tells Mrs. Alexander that, well, his mother's dead now. She died two years ago of a heart attack, and this catches Mrs. Alexander off guard. Christopher's fi father finds the detective book that Christopher has been writing about, and he has, of course, recorded everything that has happened so far, and he's really mad about it because, well, they made a promise, and we find out more about why he would be so upset. So he takes the book away, and he hides it somewhere. He makes it seem like he threw it out, which was really, <laughs> like, he really tries to trip Christopher up but he actually keeps it for whatever reason and he hides it away in a closet and so a few days later Christopher actually searches the house for the book he finds it in his father's bedroom and with it he finds a big sack of letters addressed to him from his mother which at one point he thought well it's just to another Christopher from another Christopher's mother because my mother's dead but he reads a few of them and discovers that she actually is still alive. He, she is in London now with Mr. Shears, and his father has been lying to him this whole time. And this is a huge thing, and I would say a theme is trust and lying. And his father has never lied to him, I guess to the extent of his knowledge. And that's why, you know, he believes his father. And so this is a huge break right here. Now he doesn't trust his father. And uh, he becomes sick and he loses time, as he says. So he just, it's almost like a blackout, but he's still awake. And his father discovers him with the letters, which is unfortunate. He apologizes for lying and he admits that he was the one who killed Mrs. Shears' dog because he had feelings for Mrs. Shears and she ended up being kind of a selfish person even though it didn't seem like it because she was coming over after the mother left and helping out but in the end she just wasn't having it so now Christopher feels like it's not safe to live with his father because he lied and he killed a dog 
So he's decided he's going to move to London and live with his mother, but he's never gone anywhere by himself. He's never been to London. He has problem being in busy places or getting around large groups of people. He's he's actually referenced a, a previous times that he has been maybe shopping and he has to lay down on the ground and do groaning, as he says, or uh, he gets sick. So it, it's going to be tough. So ooh, it is really challenging. He's got to get to the train station. He's got to navigate through the throngs of people. Um, his father actually enlists the police to try and find him. The night before he runs away, I should say, Christopher hides out behind a shed or like between a shed and a garbage bin so he hasn't left yet but then when his father's gone then he decides to go on his journey the police actually apprehend him but the train starts and he has to go to the bathroom so he's go to, he goes to the bathroom and i find this i don't know that section always gets me a little bit he ends up hiding in like a little cubby or shelves that you would put suitcases on for the remainder of the trip and the thing that gets to me is that there are people who don't notice whatsoever and they're just there's a kid there's a kid a 15 year old on a shelf and they're just putting the suitcase on there and then the other ones are like the responses that are like you've got issues kid or you know did you touch this bag and one woman says he's like yes I did so anyways so he hides there for the entire time and it, it stops at London and the policeman doesn't know where he is and he's able to get away and now he's in at the London train station now he needs to go the underground so it just gets it gets worse and worse he loses Toby his rat at one point and goes on the track and someone ha helps him pulls him up which the touching is an issue so you can imagine all of that uh, he does get sick he loses time again and and all of that so he does finally arrive it's my Schmoop says hours and hours later he arrives at his mother's apartment in London and Mr. Shears is or they're both gone so and it's raining so he ends up just waiting outside and and for hours I feel like because then they both come home and it's like 11 p.m. so he's there she tries to hug him but that's no good Christopher tells her that his father said she was dead and she's horrified to learn this and she, he ends up staying with uh, Roger, which is Mr. Shears, and his mother for a couple days, which causes tension between that couple. And then Christopher's father comes to find him, and she demands that he leave and insists that poor Christopher can live with her. But Christopher is afraid of Mr. Shears and is quite eager to go back home to take an important exam that will help him get into university. He wants to take A-level maths and get an A on it and this is really tough and and people don't do it until like their final year of high school and he's doing it really early and at one point she says I'm sorry you can't do it you're here we can't get back and he gets really upset and he doesn't understand why that is true after about a week he and his mom go back home they actually I guess steal even though she says borrow Mr. Shears car and Christopher does end up taking the exam even though he can't think straight after not eating or sleeping for days on end his mother gets a job and a not so nice apartment which Christopher hates because it's just hard and, and they have to share the bathroom with other people and his father is trying really hard to earn back his trust and he buys him a puppy and Christopher begins spending some time at his house again really specifically with the puppy but you know incrementally getting back that relationship and he receives his, his exam results and finds out that he got the A grade on it and he 
is talking about like advanced maths he'll take next and then physics based and university and all that so he's got plans for the future and he feels like having successfully traveled to London on his own and solving the mystery of who killed the dog he can well he can <laughs> surely do anything which which I think is very much true at the end of this particular novel so I think that was it. I bumbled through it, but I think that's okay because I had to add some things that Schmoop did not. So that's a lesson to you kids. Don't always rely on Schmoop. Yeah. Okay. And so if you're in my first... class, I'm going to know. <laughs> that you did Schmoop. You well, you don't you ask are. for synopses, do you, when things? No, no, I don't. Yeah. I mean, the only thing, you know, as teacher talk, the only time that someone should be doing a synopsis would be for me anyways like thinking about ap or whatever is to give context like this is yeah this poem or whatever or this section of the aeneid is when juno is attacking the ships so there should be no reason that's eating up precious essay space which is why the kids do it because they're like if i do a long synopsis that can take up three of my five pages yes i can smell the bs (laughs) oh boy okay well did you like this book i I did i I liked it um the first time i read it 15 years ago and i enjoyed it again on the reread i thought this was very um oddly a fun book i Mm -hmm. read it in in, i read it in a day Uh, because like i i sat down to yeah i was sat down to read it oh yeah you told me that that's right in the morning and i just it just you know now i will admit i skimmed some of the stuff where he was (gasps) going like really heavy into math but um but for the most part i was like i just pick it up again i'm like oh, i'm gonna read a little more and then like by the time i hit like you know the back 50 pages or so i was like oh, i'm just gonna go ahead and finish it so yeah i read it over the course of an entire day it's very very easy read and it was uh really really enjoyable yeah i would agree yeah i really enjoyed it first time i read it and i was excited to read it again i think it is a unique novel and th- and that's really what i like now because i feel like now that novels have been going on you know writing has gone gone on for so long you kind of wonder is there anything new that that someone can do and and i think mm-hmm. that Haddon Haddon does that and i will say just as an aside because you talked about the the maths that you kind of skimmed over there is an appendix that he adds the answer to one of the the prompts that was on his a level math yeah. test and this it pops up in the play and he he does he skips over it just like Siobhan told him to. And then, you know, we're all clapping and standing up at the end of the play and everyone's off stage and then all of a sudden <laughs> the actor playing Christopher comes up through the floor <laughs> on a little uh you know, it's a it's it's a play. So like the stage and then all of a sudden this is at the end of the play and everyone's like getting ready to leave. Like an after credit a post credit scene, he goes through that entire <laughs> math problem verbally. And we're just all like astounded that he's yeah, talking it. So that that was a great little thing that they did there. Okay, so I did want to and I apologize I never put that page down that I had but I just found it when we got on here so on page eight I just wanted to to sort of set the stage uh for this and kind of how we were reacting and and reading this he does say that uh I guess it's chapter 13 this will not be a funny book I cannot tell jokes because I do not understand them and uh he does later on say that he lied about that he does know a a joke about some cows and a, a whatever whatever but so he's, he lays out it's it's not supposed to be a funny book. We There are several instances where something happens and somebody laughs 
he said he perceives it as laughing at him and i suppose like that's actually that is true even though i think they might be laughing at like the situation but it probably is how he's handling it. and he doesn't like that he doesn't like people laughing at him mm-hmm. and so i just wondered if you found some of the situations that he gets himself in or some of the the ways that he describes things as funny did you feel this way and if you if we do pers- you know find some of these things funny or how he presents things is that a shame on us like should we then sort of check ourselves and be like well wait you know this actually he's just being straightforward we shouldn't laugh at this or should we give ourselves some some leeway with this when we're reading it so this is more of like a personal challenge i i wondered because this was something that i thought about when i was yeah. reading so i wondered what your perception of it was or, or how you might have reacted to certain situations i think they were like i don't know if i was laughing at anything really but i think there were a couple of very cute moments where i like one is where he's visiting his neighbor and and she's like gonna make him cookies or something and then he just decides to he's like well i'm gonna he she goes back in and he just takes off because he's got to go looking for something else. Or she, and then later on, she's like, you know, I, I made the biscuits for you, or whatever it was. I don't know. I found that cute. I was just like, yeah, because I could just kind of picture the scene of her going in and him just being kind of like, OK, I'm going now. And it's just I can picture it play, played for laughs in just a kind of a very subtle, straightforward, like, you know, matter of fact joke. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, like the matter of factness of the whole thing was kind of. Yeah. It's kind of funny, um, and and he's not being deliberately funny. But then I'm like, you know, I think I, that does sound insensitive, though. But I can understand of how like he's very sensitive to um, people laughing because he perceives them as laughing at him, partially because they don't understand, but partially kind of imagine that he has been laughed at so much mm-hmm. that it's a natural reaction because he does talk at one point in the book about um you know him and the other kids at the school and how like you know the, they told the uh the the non-special ed kids to refer use the word don't stop using like spaz and like other words and they say you know um you know they're special needs children and they started shouting special needs special needs because children are cruel uh so i can imagine like he's very sensitive to laughter at uh, around something he does because he feels like he's being ridiculed. Um, but I would give us a little bit of a leeway. It's it's kind of a natural thing for us to chuckle at certain moments like that. And and um, as long as, you know, as long as we understand that maybe it's not as funny as we thought because we're kind of making fun of, of a kid and it's kind of catch ourselves, then we're okay. Yeah. I, I think... <laughs> Oh, yeah, it is all the matter of fact. Like, he is not kidding, and it's almost like you're laughing because... And this is something that people accuse... Accuse isn't the right word, but I will just say things and have a straight face, and I am joking, but they don't know what to make of it. It's just <laughs> so called I, the I, deadpan delivery style. Yeah, but I'm just thinking about his plan. He had a whole plan to bust out of the police station, about uh, the jail, and it involves setting himself on fire. And then he says that he would take a wee and put himself out. And I was like, this is hilarious. But he's being completely serious. And then I felt bad. So it was it was, it was, was really interesting. And, and I wonder, you know, in real life society, like, if we were to encounter that, I, I, he'd be upset. He'd be upset at me because mm-hmm. I would laugh yeah. at it. And then, yeah, so you have to, man... 
Yeah, so I felt I felt bad about that. I was just thinking about in the real world, mm-hmm. how would I behave, and then how could you? I don't know. How could you do better? But I, I guess it's all about understanding him, empathy, which I do have a question about empathy, but understanding and then perhaps you make a faux pas and then you, you know, apologize for that faux pas and and hopefully he would accept that and then and move on and then you know from then on that he's very straightforward, lays everything out. So even though it might seem silly to you, that's what he truly believes and so you should react well to that. So, yeah. I think it's just, you know, just like anyone else, you see, trying to see their perspective on something. It's just Mm -hmm. like a quirkier perspective than maybe something else that you and I have discussed on Mm the show. Okay, well, I'm glad I was not alone. Okay, we'll do the, let's do the empathy question. I think this is G. Okay, so how much empathy do we as readers come to feel for Christopher? How much understanding does he have of his own emotions? And there is a specific question about just, you know, what is the effect of, of some scenes like Christopher, her mother, his mother not understanding. Yeah, she doesn't. She He, he keeps insisting I have oh, to go yes. take my math exam. And she's yeah. like, no, we're not going to get you. And, and it's yeah. and, and he's becoming frustrated. It's like, you know, you're not going to stretch to help this your, your kid out here. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So empathy that we have for Christopher and I guess almost empathy for other characters towards Christopher, I guess, if I were to sort of bottle bottle this question. down, I feel that there's a lot of empathy in this book and I feel that we do gain a lot of empathy for him. And I think we automatically have a lot of empathy for the people who interact with him because we are the people who would normally interact with him. Mm -hmm. So when he has an interaction with somebody who is not like him, we automatically understand in some cases, we have some um, grace for those people because we're very much like them. We don't necessarily know how to deal. And, you know, and, and in other cases where there's somebody who's mean to him, um, I think we feel uh, frustration, maybe even anger. Mm-hmm. Um, empathy for him, though, I feel like I did. I don't feel like I fully understand you know that I can't I can't fully see the world through his eyes, but yeah. I feel this does give me just a you know, I think you you've talked about empathy and then how compassion comes from or is paired with that and comes from that, et cetera. And, and I think this is one of those cases where we get that. We get some compassion for him as well. You know, the, and, and we, we will never fully understand. We will never fully walk in his shoes, but we are getting enough so that we can. I feel like we learn quite a bit here and mm-hmm. and, and, and the logical part of the brain kicks in when you observe him and then you observe maybe somebody else who is similar and and it's like you now have a little bit of an experience that you're building a mental checklist of ways to approach an interaction so that it's a positive interaction and then little, little things like that so yeah i think we do i was really frustrated with his mother toward the end of the story but we can get to that later so yeah, well, yeah, I might I might ask a, a follow-up, at least with that specific example of, of the A-levels. But I agree that I was able to put myself in his shoes. I think you're right that this one it might be more difficult to, which is interesting. I guess with different people, there are different levels of mm-hmm. understanding, like, how far can I go? Here. Yeah. But certainly, you know, from the beginning to the end, I think you're really understanding. And so even though I think there were some times that I, maybe like the A-level maths or, or other things that, 
he's becoming upset at. And I thought, oh, man, do you not? <laughs> Especially that section, I feel like, because I, I actually felt bad for his mom in that section, if only because she really was in a poor position and there was nothing she could do about the, the A-levels, and he just was unable to to get why that was tough. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was having trouble understanding, why do you not get why this is hard to have? But, yes, I so I agree with you there, and I think this empathy is different from maybe the empathy that we have for or we search for in the reader where we can try to understand but we can also criticize or not condone actions and i think there's really this should be almost judgment free because it's not like i don't know i feel like he's he's not doing anything wrong it's wrong in our minds i suppose of like oh well mm -hmm. this is not how you know a human being would I, you know but that's we should i think lay those aside so there should be really any judgments of his behavior it's more like understanding that this is his worldview with the with other characters though i feel like it's really interesting to see other characters interactions with Christopher and see what level of empathy they have. So Siobhan, I think, is a huge character to see. And clearly, I feel like I probably have a question about her, but clearly, you know, she, I feel like she's been around many kids, mm -hmm. kids that have various backgrounds, so she knows. She knows how to engage with them. But then strangers. I think Mrs. Alexander was a great character. She was so patient with him. Yeah. And uh, that interaction in the store, and he said, like, I ran away, and she said, I gathered that. You know, those were those are funny interactions, too. But mm -hmm. just being really kind to him, and yeah. I, I feel like maybe she knew what was up and was just very patient, and that might just come from being a, a wizened older lady. But, yeah, other people on the, you know, on the the tube, um, the people that helped him, and that one mm -hmm. woman who said, are you okay, and touched him, and he started screaming, and then she walked off. You know, not, it's just interesting to see the different interactions with people, and I wondered, you know, in place of them, would you not see that there was, that this person was different, and then, maybe engage them differently or mm -hmm. they just thought that he was a quote unquote spaz, you know, the police officer. Yeah. There's yeah. Something wrong with, you No know, monkey business, I think is the one that the was about to capture him on the train. So I was, those people were hard because I thought, can you not see, but maybe it was subtle enough. Maybe it seems really exacerbated as we're reading, but maybe his cues are really, his social cues are subtle except for the, the groaning and things. I don't know. But mm -hmm. those were those were interesting little case studies. I think the side characters that we find. Mm -hmm. Did you? I, well, do I guess I have a question with his mom. But am I alone in that? Did you? Because you said that he, you, she, man, you said that she was trying your nerves near the end. Was that a yeah. section that she tried your nerves, or was it another? It was. Section? It was that section where like she. Where, where, like, he's like, I gotta go take my, my exam, and she's like, not today. Like, she was blowing him off, and because, like, her, Mr. Shears, Roger, was obvious, you know, their, their relationship was, was disintegrating. Although it seems like it was disintegrating before Christopher got there, but, you know, it was, you know, Roger obviously was trying to make it out to seem like it was, you know, and, and, and maybe, like this showing him showing up complicated things more, but at the same time, it's like, you know, she bet your dad's going to bother me, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't know. I just keep thinking, I kept thinking to myself, your son was able to get on the train and the subway and take all day to 
get back to get to London to see you and found you, you could certainly find your way back to the town to let him take the math exam and then start working out what needs to be done. That's, I mean, yeah, it, it just, it's just true. like you yeah. are like, you're, Oh, I don't have the time for this today. It's like, lady, this is your child. And, and, and not only that, you're doing what you did two years ago, you know, where you basically, didn't she leave because she basically, it was like, like he was, she was sleeping with Mr. Shears and everything, but it part, wasn't part of it. Like, you know, she couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. It and too it, much for so her. now you're back in this and it's like automatically you're back for two days. It's like, you can't take it anymore. Grow up a little bit and, you know, take the responsibility or because you're going to have to, because this child does not want to be with his father. And you can work out the compromise later, but for this moment, for this time, even if it's a month, two months, six months, a year, you have to step up. And it really bothered me that she was like, well, you know, we can't do that today. Blah, blah. It's like, no, you can. You can get your ass on a train and you can go back to the to the town or you can get a car. And you can go back or whatever. If he could do it to get all the way there, you can you can help him out here. You know, I mean, it worked out in the end. He took his thing in there, but but it was just like I was getting very frustrated. I'm getting frustrated now because it's just like because it's still all about her in that moment too, and it always was. So, but that's yeah, also very I, realistic too. Yeah, I get what you're saying, and I, and I do say that there were some red flags, even yeah, in in that what five days or whatever that they mm-hmm. were together. That I thought, oh no, is this going to last? Yeah because this is why she left in the first place but i guess i guess the the one quote from her that gives me pause is when she says i'm sorry christopher i was trying to do things properly i was not trying to mess things up and so i i feel like she is trying like maybe she just thinks that being together and being in this place and figuring out what their life is there that was her priority mm. so it potentially was selfish but i feel like also she might honestly be thinking of christopher and so going back to Swindon just she thought maybe that was not the best and so to I don't know so I guess I I have some empathy for her and and I feel like that that was complicated but I I totally get what you're what you're talking about there she's not a terrible person you know I don't think she's terrible and I think she would be very I think they would be very good for each other so I'm not totally condemning her as a bad person I just I think that they're like her immaturity you know, gets to me in that part where she isn't, she isn't thinking straight through it. It's it, it, some of her efforts here are very superficial. So it's just like, you know, I, I, I want her, you know, like I'm looking at the whole relationship, like, you know, I want her to be in his life and I want them to, I want them to help, you know, I want him, cause I think he can help her as much as she can help him, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so I, I do feel, I do feel for her, but I still get frustrated when it's like, you know, let this, this is all this kid has. This is this kid's really focused on this. He really wants to do this, and he. This is something he's really good at. Like, give let to help him out here. This is why he came to see you. He wants your help. Mm-hmm. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's go with touching. Mm-hmm. Christopher does not like to be touched, and so because that is true. Do you think that he can experience his parents' love for him? And let me just say that there is one touching he approves of and it's that he puts his hand up and fans out the fingers and really I should have said his parent puts his, their hand up and fans out the fingers and then he does it to the opposite one and they and they touch and that's 
basically, you know, I love you, I can mm-hmm. love you, that sort of thing. But do you feel like because of that limited amount of touching or touching period that he can experience his parents' love for him? Or can he only understand it as a fact because they tell him that they love him? And uh, is there any evidence in the novel that he experiences a sense of attachment to other people? I think he understands on some level the parental love. It, he might not always be able to process it, but I think mm-hmm. I think the whole the attachment to somebody else comes ironically through the betrayal of his father. Mm-hmm. I think he is attached to his father, and I think he would acknowledge that, like you know, there there's so much about his father that is important to him, and the the fa- the lie the fact that his father a killed Wellington and b lied to him about his mother I mean I think that anybody would be devastated by that first of all you know it, it's this is not just something that just some kid with with Asperger's is like you know it's special to, to that like I think if you or I found that out about our parents especially the the lie about the the mother that's like both acts are very very cruel so he feels very betrayed. And it's an authentic feeling for him. So, yeah, I think he I think the funny thing is, is just I think we realize the attachment he has to his father when he when he cannot be around his father anymore because he and, you know, logically, his father has done terrible things and he therefore needs to be away. But I also think he feels scared and Mm. feels betrayed. And it's like, I cannot be with him anymore. And I think he fears for his I think he fears for his life, too. He might have said as much. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, he, yeah, he does. Yeah, He's so, scared. Yeah. yeah. And so the betrayal of the trust is really, really important. I would, I'm would. i going to ask a sub-question, and then mm-hmm. I'll get back to my answers, just because it, it's come to this. With the line about the, the mother being dead, are there any positive aspects to it? Or is it just wrong, wrong, wrong? Is there anything really positive about the line that line to Christopher tell- that his mother died. Sorry to put you on the spot. I want to say there is something somewhere. His father was not trying to be cruel. Mm-hmm. His father was, A, beside himself with essentially what is grief. You know, she didn't leave. If she left, she didn't die. But that's still, you know, the whole, his marriage imploding, you know, and, and all that, that's still, it's traumatic for him. And he has this kid who is special, so he's trying to figure out the best way. I think he, he was doing it because he was trying not to hurt the kid. And, and I think his intentions were authentic. They were pure. They were not that of cruelty toward the mother or to the or to Christopher. So I think that's the positive that you can find in here. The intentions were genuine. The act itself was pretty terrible. You know, it's yeah. it's hard to excuse the fact that you told the child that his mother had died because she left you. But he was I he wasn't I didn't get the impression he was trying to do it out of spite. I got the impression he was trying to do it out of love and protection, which I yeah. think is different, even if it is completely misguided. I agree. I think it, it was almost a moment of passion because at the end he tries to explain that, you know, he said that whole hospital thing to kind of figure it out on his own. And then I think he was in a bit of a <laughs> he was in a bit of a rut and he had to figure out what to do. And it just got worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Which lies sometimes do. I feel like, you know, on one on the one hand, I think, oh, man, how would Christopher handle this being told this? The truth, I mean, yeah, at 
13, I suppose, because he said it was two years ago. But then on the other hand, I think, well, he's so logical and rational. And look at how he accepts when Mrs. Alexander says that Mr. Shears and his mother were doing the sex. Like he would, I think it would be very lot like this is what it is. The, your mother left us. She's with Mr. Shears now. Da, 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 da. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like maybe he'd be able to, to do that because emotion wouldn't come into play because that's not that's yeah just not him. there's a little bit of pride and ego in his father not saying it that he i think that uh, on this level his masculinity is getting in the way of like he didn't want to he didn't want to fully admit that his, his wife had run off with the guy because it's it's yeah. it's making when you tell it to christopher you have to tell it in such a concrete way that it is real mm-hmm. and so he was processing a little bit of his own denial of what had happened yeah, and unfortunately, you know, his father stole from him to a certain extent. So you, you mm-hmm. said the B word, which I love, of course, betrayal. And, and I think there are so many layers to it because he, he stole time that he could have had with his mother. And, and I feel like potentially you see some growth in her through those letters and, and seeing how maybe she's maturing and maybe they could have a relationship mm-hmm. and, and have a relationship that is gradual. Whereas now this situation, he is fully with her now. And so, yeah, of course, that's a bit daunting for her. Again. Yeah. So you kind of wonder what that's going to be like. But to get back to this particular question, I do think that he can still experience his his parents' love. I, I do think that it is really logical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about trust. I think it's about care and uh, being taken care of and and being known also, you know, knowing that he loves red, but he doesn't like yellow or later on his mother having to clean up the toilet before he goes in in the the collaborative toilet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a better word for that. The, the, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The the toilet that's on the hall, you know what I'm talking about. But I think about as as you were speaking, I was trying to find it, but I, I'm I have no idea where it was. He talks about marriage at one point and that he's looking forward to it. Mm. But the way he presents marriage is basically like someone that you are with, and they cook you food and clean for you, and then you're like <laughs> you're together. And I'm thinking, man, I <laughs> his his idea is a bit a bit out of whack. So I think I it's know, really there are logical, some men who think, think he... that marriage is basically you. <laughs> You've got your own built-in, uh, you know, shorter cook and maid. Oh, my gosh. That's terrible. Yeah, but it even seems like more impersonal than that. I was just thinking about, I guess you're in separate bedrooms. There's no touching or whatever. You're just yeah. like roommates almost. Roommates that, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's really logical for him. And, and yeah, the I think the absence of that is when you really see his – attachment to his father like you said mm-hmm. and i think siobhan is the other huge oh, yeah. player in his life and just that he trusts her he listens to her he clearly respects her and he likes what she says because he'll say something like people are not specific about things that they tell you to can you be quiet for now they don't tell you how long for now is but siobhan does dot dot dot, dot because she knows him she knows him mm-hmm. so thoroughly potentially more than his father does, in my opinion. I feel like Siobhan really knows Christopher the best yeah. in this novel. Well, so I think there's a strong attachment to her as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and I guess the, the, one of the first things he talks about is like the little uh, emoticon um, <gasps> stickers or whatever yes. they are that, yep. that she, she taught him with to use and stuff. And I think I can see like almost right away that's a good character introduction with him regard to her is that like, yeah, it's like, yeah, they she he trusts her because yep. – 
he she a she treated him very well you know and but she taught him to do something and she taught him to work through a problem he was having you know like he's so mathematics oriented that she taught him how to solve an issue that he was having with regard to emotions and perhaps that's part of the reason why he she has earned his one of the reasons why she has earned his trust yeah and in that section she laughs at mm-hmm. Or she laughs at the situation because he was judging people's faces and he was like, I don't understand these faces. And then she said, when you look at them, they probably look like this. And then she laughed and he didn't like that and she tore up. So the fact that he allowed that or was at least forgiving of that, I think also speaks a lot because other people he would probably um, Mm -hmm. just walk away. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the unusual aspects of the novel is its inclusion of, as I said in the synopsis, or I guess it was early on in one of the quotes, its inclusion of many maps and diagrams and some math problems. How effective are these in helping the reader see the world through Christopher's eyes? I think they're really effective. Um, It's a really realistic thing for anybody to explain something to you and draw you a map or something, or, or they do that thing where like, you know, you're sitting at the table. It's like this salt shaker is you and this salt is, and you know, and that sort of visual um, explanation of things. Uh, And, and, and and I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a nerd for diagrams and maps myself. So, Oh. oh yeah, I love a good map. So, so seeing those little diagrams and things like that, you know, um, I enjoyed it and I really did think it, I, I connected with it. Yes, I did. Yeah. I also enjoyed it. I, I like the cute emoticons, like really just yeah. get thrown in there. Like this is, you know, how he can figure it out. Um, I would have never guessed that you liked out. a cute emoticon. Oh, but Tom and the the puzzle when he is told to take all of his belongings out of his pocket at the police station he's got a piece of a wooden puzzle which looks like this i mean it helps us and siobhan does a good job to tell him to describe to the to the readers like she's really helping him write this book for us Mm. so i enjoyed it really well and i think more than having us see through christopher's eyes well i think two points number one the maps and things really make him feel comfortable so the fact that he puts them there i think helps us like oh wow you know this is really necessary for him to get around and survive this current world that he is and number two it's just astounding and amazing that he's able to capture i think it was swindon because he did that weird spiral thing, which I was trying to figure out what he did, like how to how to find a place is to keep going left or something, and then at one point go right. Uh-huh. And there was another, well, the zoo that was an astounding yeah, act. Just, and, really, and there was like, something uh, in one pass through he was able to do it. I don't know if that was London or not, or the the neighborhood that he had to go to. But uh, yeah, I really appreciate that especially the things that he does in his head to really calm himself down that one problem with the the white and dark squares i can't remember what that was called mm-hmm. um where you move them one over let's see what is this called conway's sh- soldiers mm-hmm. that whole thing so you just because words in that sense i think you said this early show don't tell maybe i think you said yes. that earlier that's exactly that's a really literal interpretation but i think that works like if he were to try to explain conway's soldiers 
I would have no idea what you're talking about. Even the diagrams are hard to understand, but I like that's better for us to mm-hmm. understand. And I and I think that was a great way. That's almost a way for him. <gasps> Tom, it's almost a way for him to show empathy to the reader. Yeah. <laughs> to understand that the reader is not like him necessarily, and to be like, hey, I'm gonna help you out by letting you into my world because I know that you might not understand. Yeah. So it's a two-way street. This novel. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one thing he does is just, I was flipping through it here, I noticed he, he makes a floor map, floor plan of Fifth Flat where his mom lives, like the moment he's there, so that it makes him feel more comfortable, and yep. you know, little th- yeah, little so things like that, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. Well, Christopher also loves the idea of a world with no people in it. <laughs> So do I. He, uh, yeah, he contemplates the end of the world when the universe collapses. He dreams of being an astronaut alone in space and that a virus has carried off everyone and the only people left are special people like me who don't look. The, the virus attacks people when you look at their face. Mm-hmm. So what do these passages say about his relationship to other human beings and what is striking about the way he describes these scenarios? I, I think it just goes to the isolation he tends to feel maybe you know it's, it's a very obvious answer but i think it's just another way to emphasize his um his struggle with with quote-unquote normal socialization i guess the most striking thing about it is the way it's very matter of fact mm-hmm. the way described none of it's dramatic and none of it sounds it's all done logically none of it sounds like like it's histrionics or anything like that you know mm-hmm yeah, that he feels isolated. He prefers it, certainly, just because he finds human humans confusing, which is certainly something that he says early on, that he doesn't understand humans are like mm-hmm. What else could we say? I guess it would just be he doesn't like groups of people because I think almost a lot of these disasters here, <laughs> well, there would be some people. They happen in, like, crowds. Yeah, he doesn't like crowds. So I was just thinking that I, I feel like, when he comes down to it, I think there would be certain people he would still like mm-hmm. in his life, like Siobhan. I think he would still like in that particular world. But especially, I think the virus one was the one that really captured my attention because the virus got you when you looked at somebody's face. And so that really, I think, gets to, I mean, you're talking about his isolation. I think it, it does speak to something about him because this is something that he has trouble doing. He has trouble reading people's faces. So that yeah. almost anxiety and in his inability to do that transfers over to something, well, I just get rid of the anxiety. And so now the thing that causes me trouble is gone. It caused other people trouble, and now we're, we're in this world. So, yeah, I, I would agree that that sort of helps him, I think, reconcile, I guess, his place in the world. Also, I, I felt something that I thought about that he doesn't think about, especially in the virus situation, is that the world would really like cease to be he's he's talking about basically living his life as he does normally he would he would go home and play the computer and i'm thinking christopher if all those people are gone you know the power would stop working there'd be no one to work all these things and so i think he also even though humans are overwhelming for him and confusing i think maybe he also doesn't appreciate them mm-hmm. and their role in the world as much as as he does other things yeah. i don't know because it's a recurring tree he has this through a dream and i don't know 
the circumstances in which if it pops up in a pattern, but in the book when he talks about it, it comes after a very tense confrontation between his father, his mother, Mr. Shears, and the police. So I wonder if the dream is his subconscious helping him retreat to a safe place because mm. of he had to – He I don't think they knew he was watching or or what. But he certainly saw all of that yelling and all of that commotion, all of that fighting, and that, and that would be unsettling to any child um, at any age. But this was particularly um, – perhaps it was so unsettling that, like, you know, when he finally got to sleep, he had that dream because it's a very safe place for him. It's something that he likes, mm-hmm. and it, it centers him or grounds him. So I don't know if he has that daydream when it if it's if it's an indicator of things when they are so overwhelming in the world that he just wants to be alone in the world. Mm. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's the only time it's mentioned. And he's not going to be able to express to us that I just think of this when I want to be alone in the world, you know, when I'm overwhelmed, because he doesn't necessarily know how to interpret or all of his emotions in that way. Yeah, very true. Well, another thing that human beings do is lie constantly. But Christopher has trouble with lies. He has trouble with metaphors, understanding metaphors Mm -hmm. and lies. He just doesn't lie. Why is lying such an alien concept to him? Why do normal human beings in the novel like Christopher's parents find lies so indispensable? And why is the idea of truth so central to Christopher's narration? I think in terms of his character, we see a character who is very black and white in terms of the way he is thinking. And I don't want to make the assumption that that goes along with autism. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, if you're somebody, if, if, if you're if you're on the spectrum here and you're somebody who is very logical based, then, yeah, this is all kind of like, you know, uh, truth would make sense because it's there's a logic to truth and there's not an illogic to, to a lie. He'd love Spock. Because <laughs> he he's not cold, you know. That's the other. He's not like emotionless and cold or robot or anything. But but you know, he certainly. I, I think the truth makes sense. It's logical, and I think I want to say I feel like I keep coming back to the same point. But I feel like he gets comfort in some of these things, even if he does mm-hmm. not necessarily understand or want to admit that. Yeah, I would also say that with humans that are not Christopher. Mm-hmm. There's a motivation behind every lie. Yes. Like there's a reason why you're doing it. <laughs> Are you trying to spare someone's feelings? Are you trying to protect yourself? Da, 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 mm-hmm. da. And all of the things he said, there are no motivations behind it. He's just saying whatever is, you know, the truth and, and factual at that time. So I think that also might be something because he's not a manipulative person. He, which which maybe is why his mother said, you're a good person. And he said, I don't lie because I'm a good person. I lie because I can't lie. Mm-hmm. But there's none of that manipulation or, or other reasons why he would lie behind it. So potentially he is, you know, a good person just because he's really innocent in that. Yeah. But but I like this. What was it um, about truth being at the center of this? I lost it because I highlighted it in yellow so I wouldn't ask the question again. <laughs> Why is truth so central? Yeah. It's central. Man. Well, I think it's central to this novel. Like, if I were to take ourselves out of yeah. it, it's just central to the book itself because we, we talk about 
unreliable narrators and things like that. And I, you can't have an unreliable Christopher because you're already it's already going to be a struggle for you to understand him. Mm-hmm. And so to then un, not understand and not trust him is too much. So I think it's necessary to have this truth. Like so, we take everything that he says as factual. This is all happening. And, you know, all those scenes with very specific quotes, I didn't need to say very specific, but just quotes and conversations. And we always ask the question and even memoirists say, you know, I did the best I could to recall this conversation. But he proves in other situations that he recalls things really well. He talks about years ago at a beach and what day that was and time and all of that stuff. So we can really trust him. So I, I think, again, it's central to the narration almost just uh, reaching out, I think, a bridge from him to us again. Yeah, I think that was the point I was thinking about, too, that, like, he's getting us to trust him. And yeah. so um, that's that's one of the reasons it's so important. Yeah. With, with trust, I, I think that segues well into this. Do you feel like he will ever learn to trust his father again? We see maybe some increments oh. at the end. I feel like the puppy is the huge reason why he's giving him that time. Yeah. But do you think this is almost like uh, what's broken can never be fixed with Christopher? I mean, yeah, what are your thoughts? I guess if there were a sequel to this, which there should have never be, but if there were a sequel to this, what would that look like? I don't think it's irreparable, but I don't think it'll ever be on the level that it originally was. Mm. You know, I don't think he, he'll move past. It will take a long time, I think, to rebuild trust. And that's where his mother is going to have to be helpful. Mm-hmm. But... It will never be the same as it was with his dad before because he will he he's not going to forget this. Not that you ever would, but he's not going to let bygones be bygones, etc. So, but I think he can come to trust him enough to be around him. So maybe even live with him. Hmm. I'm trying to think of any other instances in his life that something may have happened and he held a grudge or something. It seems like he doesn't. Mm -hmm hold grudges when things happen you know touching yeah, or because there was some it seemed like there were some hard interactions earlier on with his mother specifically mm-hmm. but he he came to her and and i have trouble almost reconciling the fact that he there's nothing obviously no emotion but he doesn't think about the fact that she had left them mm-hmm. like she just got up and left but i guess it just it all fell on on his father i'm hoping <laughs> I guess the fact that he is even there is really helpful, but, you know, he clo- he locks his door, the dog sleeps with him, and he says that it'll bark if, if someone comes in, which would be his father. So he's clearly on guard. So I think it's going to take time, and I think for Christopher, time's going to be a long time. Well, that was redundant, <laughs> but it's going to be a long span in order to to get i'm really hoping so just because i i root for his father because he stayed with christopher and so you know in a moment of passion and and he made that mistake and the and the lie just got out of his control Mm -hmm. i really feel bad for him so i hope that it comes back but maybe you know by the time christopher grows up and goes to university that's yeah so I hope you will learn to trust. That's in that interesting though. Just that phrase, "learn to trust." I don't think he 
needs to learn to just will he trust his father ever again yeah or not. yeah and and i i like not concerned about him for university but i'm just curious about how that would work or how that how that not how that would work sorry how that will go just I, it, yeah. it is i don't want a sequel to the book but i am curious it, i would just i would curi- be curiously love to see him in university see him a little older and see what he's like Without and how Thanos' yeah. life is like. Just, just you know, yeah. I don't mean the story. It's just, it's, it's just kind of, you kind of wonder. Like, you know, that's how that's how much of an impact he has on you as a character. Like, you do kind of wonder what his life ends up being like as he grows into adulthood and stuff. Absolutely. One thing I wondered, actually, I want to ask you since you're a parent. Mm-hmm. If you had Christopher as a son and you lived in the neighborhood that they did and clearly – Maybe some people were a bit more aware of who Christopher was. Like Mrs. Alexander, I think, is, is pretty in touch with who he is. But other people were just treating him like a, an odd an odd duck. Would you, after moving in, go around to your neighbors and say, you know, my son is Christopher. He's on the spectrum. Do you think you would do that or just, like, let it be? I'm trying to think because I actually don't um, really take an effort to, make, to know my neighbors. <laughs> um <laughs> I would say if they interact with him and I feel that I have to explain, well, not while he's there, but like, you know, afterward, I might, I might, but I don't think I have to feel like I have the need to go around to everybody and, mm-hmm. you know, like, like warn them or something. But, you know, if he had interaction and stuff and I, and I knew about it, I'd say, you know, hey, I know you met my, here you met my son, Christopher, the other day and just a little bit about him or something. So, Mm-hmm. Yeah, but not in a, like, knocking on the door and I've got to tell you about my kid sort of way. Okay. Oh, yeah, I wasn't sure. Just, like, as a protective measure. Like, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I think I would. there would be a little bit of a protective measure there. And that way people can understand. It's just if you see him, and you, you, you can certainly interact with him. But there are certain, like, you know, the touching thing, for instance, you know, that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. Don't touch mm-hmm. my son. That would be the huge thing, yeah. I would say. But. Okay, well, which I wondered if if his father had explained, could they have expunged that from his record and he wouldn't have had to have a caution? I don't know. Or are they just going to, like, you, you hit a hos- uh, an officer, you're going to have a caution mm, no yeah, matter what? Yeah, they'll probably let it go anyway at some point. Okay. I don't know if, I I don't know if records get expunged after a certain age as it is. So. Well, he's going to carry it on for a long time. He kept he kept bringing that up. Oh, he has a caution. He'll remember it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. for sure. Remember that time I got a caution? Okay. Uh, there were a couple, by the way, since this takes place in England, there were a couple things that jargon-wise mm-hmm. I had to look up. Like one thing was pool, and I can't remember what pool was called. It was like scooter or something like that. Oh, really? So I don't know if that was true for you. But... I must have missed that one. Oh, that's so. Okay, I think just two more questions, J and K. As I okay. Have. So his journey to London underscores the difficulties he has being on his own and the real disadvantages of his condition in terms of being in the world. What is most? What did you find? Let's say that. What did you find more most frightening, disturbing, or moving about this extended section of the novel? You know, I I, I think we would all say the the incident on the tracks. But I think the thing that was the most tense for me was he's at one of the stations, might have been the train station or the subway station, but he 
you know, a little bit tense when he's trying to get the ticket to the train. I know, but there's a point where I think it's the subway station where he's sitting at the, at the station and ends up there for like five hours Mm, and yeah. just sitting there and 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 being i think he's rocking or something and he's, he's trying like I, w- I was legitimately worried for him like yeah. in a way that like i was you know and i'd read this before and i was like i know he gets to see his mother but i even in the moment of reading it again it was just like i can picture this kid like is he gonna get out of there is he gonna be okay is the is there a cop gonna try to get him again you know like i was worried that he wasn't gonna get where he wanted to go and i was worried that he was gonna get in trouble and i was worried that he was gonna be hurt you know and i think that was the most frightening part where like i was kind of frightened there with him like you know i was picturing i was picturing a little kid because of the way he is which i shouldn't have been doing because he's 15 but even then like just was a little bit frightening mm-hmm. yeah I, yeah i would agree the fact that he well, lost that time mm-hmm. i suppose in his head i i would agree the track sequence was you know going after toby and i thought oh no mm-hmm. <laughs> this is you need to let that rat go but there's no way that christopher's gonna let that rat go and then being pulled up and the kindness of some of the strangers just the interactions with and, and that was just i think that whole section was when I was really looking at almost human beings and thinking how, you know, do you really need to be that savvy or intuitive to not understand that there's something special about Christopher and so you should be engaging in a different way? Because mm-hmm. I would say the majority of people just dismiss him as a quote-unquote spaz. And then there are the few that, that care for him but then get yeah. uh, pushed off because they may have touched him like that that yeah. young girl uh, after the track. The thing. city <sighs> – that's a, it's a very, he, he's pulling on a very city people trope of, of they're yeah. not being cruel, they're just ignoring him because they're they're so people in the city are self absorbed you know this sort of like they don't have the time for anything you know it's the um it's like New Yorkers New Yorkers are seeing New York City has this reputation of having people um you know the people in New York are rude no they're not they're actually some of the best people in the world. It's just that you just don't understand that nine times out of ten, they don't have the time for anybody. <laughs> and yeah. it comes off as rude because they're just kind of like doing their thing and they're they're focused on their life. And it's just like they're 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 not they're not they're not rude. They're ignoring you. It's OK. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the case in the some of the people in London. And it's like, you know, no, they're they're. I don't think they're looking down at him. I think they're just he's just not registering on some level, you know. Yeah, and uh, oh, his tactic of barking at them. Yeah, they touch him. That's or brush past them, kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. So that's that is off putting to them, and I think it's a natural reaction to be put off by that because it's oh sure he's yeah. being defensive. What's happening right yeah. now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then the final question is: in his review of the curious incident, Jay McInerney, McInerney, oh no, McInerney. Is it really? Mick okay. Mick is very often sometimes it can be Mac, but yeah, I think it's Mick and Ernie or Mac and Ernie. Okay. I had a friend I had a friend whose last name guy. um I had a friend whose last name was McEnany and it was spelled M C A N A N E Y. So that's why I say Mac and Ernie, because it, it sounds like McEnany. 
Okay, you've really helped me out linguistically this time. So Jay McInerney suggests that at the novel's end, quote, the gulf between Christopher and his parents, between Christopher and the rest of us, remains immense and mysterious. And that gulf is ultimately the source of this novel's haunting impact. Christopher Boone is an unsolved mystery, end quote. And this was from the New York Times book review in June of 2003. Is this an accurate assessment? And if so, why? And if not, why? <laughs> uh, Jay McInerney, by the way. Do you know him? He is the author of the 1980s novel Bright Lights, Big City. Oh, interesting. He's also a... Uh, he was also a uh, writer on the show. Oh, he was on the show Gossip Girl. <laughs> really? That's fictional I novelist Jeremiah Harris, mentor to aspiring oh, writer Dan Humphrey. Yeah, no, I just I recognized the name. I was like, oh yeah, Bright Lights, Big City. It's on my it's on my Goodreads to read list. Anyway, uh, yeah, the question. Um, you know, the one of the last first things I had when I finished that novel was exactly what he said about how, like, the the relationship between him and his parents, especially him and his father, is like, wow, there's just so much work to do here. And and that left me it was it was left unresolved. And therefore, it left me thinking about it a lot. And I think the way he phrases this is Christopher Boone is an unsolved mystery is a very, very good way to phrase it, especially since Christopher Boone wanted to write a mystery novel. And if he's the mystery that he is, he, he is not so completely solved to us because we don't know. We don't know what is going to happen. Like he is all positive about um, I can do this. And I think he can. I have faith in him that he will figure things out and that he will be able to handle himself. And he has learned, he has really truly learned something here about the world in a positive and a negative way. And he will take those lessons. I always, I, I get the feeling that he learns well, that he applies the lessons he learns in a very um, constructive way and I feel that he's going to do that but at the same time as readers we are also cynical and we I you wonder like you know how much is he really going to actually accomplish but also you also worry about him versus the world and you worry about the fact that he doesn't necessarily have he has parents who love and who love and will support him but at the same time he does not have the relationship with his parents that he absolutely that we absolutely think he should need because mm-hmm. of the, the betrayal, the, the trust issues that are there. So, yeah. So the unsolved mystery here is is what his fu- is his future because yeah. he's still growing and he's still becoming a fully grown, fully developed human being. Yeah. And that's the that's and, and, and the, the that gulf between him and his parents is is making it much, much harder to solve. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I somewhat disagree just that the gulf between him and his parents and between him and us is mysterious. I feel like by the, I think in the beginning, it certainly is Mm -hmm. like you're trying to figure, especially between him and us trying to figure out who this kid is. But by the end, I I think if, if Haddon has done his, his 
work correctly. He's done his job and we've read, I think, correctly and wisely and empathetically. I don't think it should be as mysterious. And I don't think that Christopher should be a mystery. I agree with you that his future is the mystery, yes. but him, I, I feel like I better understand him by the end. I don't think mm-hmm. I would put a big question mark. Like I, I can't describe Christopher at all. Yeah. I think I could summarize who Christopher is. Mm-hmm. So I, I somewhat disagree with that and, and, and change McKierney's <laughs> McKierney's what precept or whatever. Um, yeah, bit. no, I, I agree with you. I think that's, I think that's a really good point. Although I think the gulf between him and his parents is immense. For different reasons. Oh, too. sure. Yeah. 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 But perhaps would you agree that maybe more, um, even though immense is a large amount, more immense for the father than the than yes. the mother? Okay. I would also agree with that. Okay. You know, Oh, you know, I was thinking about the love question and the dogs. Mm. Do you think there's a difference? Do you think he's showing love? He can touch the dogs, and the dog can touch him. Do you think there's a difference there between that huh. and that love? I, I was just thinking yeah, about that. Yeah, I find that kind of curious. No pun intended. I find that kind of curious. That, like, Yeah. He also says he li- – I don't think he says love, but he says I like dogs. I yeah, like he, he lets animals touch him. And yeah. I don't know is that if that's a – I don't know. I, I don't know why. Um, I, I, he, he obviously sees the difference between a human and an animal and there's obviously some sort mm-hmm. of some fundamental difference there. And, and, and so he allows for that, but I can't tell you why yeah, he says, I like dogs. This is chapter five. I like dogs. You always know what a dog is thinking. It has four minds, happy, sad, cross, and concentrated. Kind of like his four emoticon thingies there so maybe that's what it is like not that he's a dog but like you know maybe he yeah. just the that 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 level of understanding between him and a dog and the ease of the emotions of a dog it's like i see you have food i would like food. yeah he also says they're faithful and and can't tell lies because they can't talk so yeah. i think that goes back to maybe that logical idea of what love is yeah. and what he perceives it to be but yeah. that's a good point yeah Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I think, I think this is it. Are there any other questions you have? No, I think we covered. I just didn't do I, but I feel like we talked. Yeah. Yeah. I was just looking at I and I was like, we we, we already, we already did that. Yeah. Yeah. So no, yeah. I thought it was, it was, uh, I thought we, I thought we covered everything. (gasps) (laughs) Okay. Well, Tom, is this required reading? Yeah, I think it is. And it's, it, because, I don't know if there's enough of this type of literature out there to that extent. Maybe there is. Maybe there has been in, in the, the years since this has come out. Cause this novel's almost 20 years old at mm-hmm. this point. But um, I feel that this is a way to get to know somebody like this in a way that isn't smarmy in that sort of like feel sorry for the for the mentally challenged individual type of way or – or putting them on display as something to be kind of like for our amusement. You know, this mm-hmm. kid's not Forrest Gump or he's not like, you know, or, or we don't like we feel for him, but he's not a sympathy case and, and all the bad things. And like there, there's, I, I feel like he's well around a character and I feel like he is a character that yes, there's a mystery in here and everything. And there's obviously plot and conflict and stuff. But at the same time, I feel that like we're seeing somebody operate on just kind of a very, 
uh, routine everyday level as well, you know, and, and I think that's one of the strengths of the book. So, yeah, I would definitely hand this because it's also really good, like with characterization and how setting affects like all there's, like, there's so much literary analysis we could do with this at like a high school level and stuff like that. So, yeah, I would definitely say this is required reading. I agree. And there's a whole genre called sick lit. <clears throat> so I don't know why we can't have, you know, a genre or more primary and main characters with uh, people on the spectrum, because I, I feel like uh, I could be in the wrong. Maybe I'm just not finding them or not reading them or not searching for them. But I feel like the majority of characters I've seen on the spectrum have been like little brothers or sisters to the main character. Yes. And you know, what the other thing is, I think that's important, too, is that um, the we don't get enough of adolescents, young adults and adults with who are on the spectrum in popular culture in literature and in terms of like, you know, uh, just in, in general, like we, we do have a tendency to think of children who are uh, children, children, you know, um, which is the, kind of one of the things about like anything involving like learning and education. Anyway, we tend to default toward elementary school level kids and stuff like that. But yeah, there, I think there's a lot more stories about like, you know, little kids, <laughs> with autism than there are uh, somebody who's like 15, 16 years old, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to think, oh, there it is. Uh, there will, I will say that there is a trilogy of books called The Rosie Project, mm -hmm. and I can't remember the other ones, by Graeme Simpson, and it, it centers on a genetics professor, Don Tillman, mm -hmm. who clearly is on the spectrum, though it's not ever denoted until I think the third one, like he finally... Mm gets yeah diagnosed mm -hmm. something like that yeah so maybe you know that would probably be the only thing that i had seen but yeah that that's why i picked it here is is just trying to represent and and yeah. pick literature something that's worthwhile for both young adults and adults and i think seeing those two perspectives because i think those different groups would be able to engage with this novel in different ways because obviously young adults you know if a 15 year old were reading about a 15 year old i think that that would be a different experience than we reading about it or us reading about it yeah. so i would say required reading especially if you want to see a different type of protagonist that experiences mm -hmm. the world in a different way so yeah. i'm just happy yeah happy to have that yeah. that representation yeah. for sure. and i can i say so i need to say something positive about teenagers <gasps> these days because we oh, you have you. been around them and i am around them all the time <laughs> when i was in when i was younger uh-huh with the onions on with your the onion on my belt which is the style at the time <laughs> When I was younger, people made fun of people like this a lot. Mm. And there were jokes about, um, again, R word thrown around, people mm. mimicking the way they acted. There was a certain voice that I'm not going to use um, that, like, you know, people would you know, people make short bus jokes and things like that. Mm. And it was a type of humor that is very cruel and yet was still very acceptable among people. I rarely, if ever, especially in the last four or five years, have seen that. Um, I see just compassion from my students towards students who are on the spectrum, you know, because we, you know, there are certain, you know, there's a whole group of, of them and in classes uh, not too far from my classroom. Um, and just, just, just a general niceness, 
and it's encouraging. I feel like there is because there's more understanding about things about things like autism and and um, you know uh, uh, students with special needs and things like that, and that it's become more visible that it really is working towards something positive where people in the very least have an understanding or in the very least are nice um, and, and are not making it. It really has become more on more and more unexpected, except more and more. Jeez. If I could talk more and more unacceptable to make that, that voice and pretend that you're like the kid on the short bus and stuff like that. You know, you know, I, I went from finding it uneasy to just finding it offensive. Um, mm-hmm. And it took me a while to get there because I was just so used to it. Right. I first would laugh at it when I was much younger and then I was just kind of tolerated because I was trying to, I don't want to upset the person, make the joke, you know, and then now at the same time, I'm like, no, that's not, that's not right. You know, um, and, and when I see teenagers act and I see them act around, you know, the students who I, you know, I see them interact with other students and stuff, I don't see it any as much at all or if at all anymore. So just a, just a, a, a positive thing about the youth of today, they really are, they are way more compassionate than my generation was. And my generation, the people I know, like who I keep in touch with who are like of my generation are very compassionate people. They're very empathetic and they're very progressive and they are, they are here for being an ally or being supportive or whatever. But there are a lot of scumbags in my generation who mm-hmm. there are a lot of Karens and, um, and, and this generation of kids, I'm seeing a trend of some really, really good things out of them. So it's just, it just made me think of that. So that yeah, sense. it is. Yeah. Speaking of nice, although there are a lot of teenagers who don't have empathy for anything, and you know we're going to knock some empathy into them, but <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. There are a lot of them. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, all right. We speaking of nice, we have feedback. We have a Facebook comment from Robert Wharton. I, first of all, I owe an apology to uh, to everybody. I totally, I thought I had posted episode. Well, I did. We posted episode fifty two, obviously the Heroides, and it was posted to the website and it was tweeted out. I had totally forgotten to post it to Facebook. I was like, what? Because um, I thought I had, and and then I, and it, or I thought it had automatically posted when I dropped the when I dropped the blog post. But it is up on Facebook now too. Um, but he, uh, just quickly commented about night. Um, he said after the reader and now this, this is Robert Ward, our book buddy <laughs> after the reader. And now this oof, I'm glad I'm being introduced to these works, but man, talk about a tough read slash listen, by the way, since you never had a post about it, I listened to only the selected parts of the heroities, but enjoyed them. I plan on listening to the audiobook in its entirety eventually. Um, yeah, sorry. Next episode, we will be doing a journal of the plague year. No. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. All of a sudden. The plague year. yeah. What yeah, what other death can I bring to this thing? Um, so you'll be happy to know that, like, um, shortly after we finished our episode, I printed out Penelope to Odysseus part. Or <gasps> Ulysses. Sorry. Um, I plan on using it. I haven't taught the Odyssey yet this year. I plan on using it um, later in my unit, but I gave it to the teacher next door to me who also, because she, she, I said, you might want to, you might want to consider using this in short. And I, you know, I explained what the heroities are and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, that's really cool. I don't know if she used it, but I did pass it along. So we're changing well done, lives. Man. Sir, you are 
trying to indoctrinate people into Latin and classics, and I'm proud of you for that. <laughs> I try. Yeah, so that is it. Um, if you have feedback, uh, don't forget to send it our way. It could be about an old episode. It could be about this episode, etc. Yeah, I guess it's that time, and I get to tell it is that time, Tom. What are we going to be doing uh, next month? So off, um, off mic before we started, Stella and I were having a this. We were recording this in the middle of April of 2021, by the way, and we were talking. Uh, we were talking about Ibram X. Kendi's um, stamped. We were talking about stamped from the beginning, and we were talking about the uh, Derek Chauvin trial. And um, oh no, notes, I know things. where this is going. Stella Stella <laughs> was reading a book called The Color of Law and and it's about housing policy and 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 racist housing policy and I was saying you know I read that last year really really loved it um and I was just it was so hilarious I almost almost blurted out that we are we are going to be reading a raisin in the sun for next I... <laughs> like I was like holy crap it was even timing, mentioned Stella. it was mentioned in The Color of Law Stop. and then when I just it just clicked with me that you said we were going to well, do a play and i'm like oh i see yes yeah, so we were going to be doing a raisin in the sun by lorraine hansberry so okay <laughs> that so i mean you know there you go robert another uplifting i think a piece of literature, of literature. <laughs> oh. oh boy okay well i will i haven't read that oof Probably since I was in high school, oh, cool. so this should be. I hope that I better understand yeah. it. That's what I love about the ones that I I pull back from high school mm. is that I probably may have been floundering in the scholastic environment, but I I'm hoping that I am more matured and more intelligent now that I will better understand the things that we're reading. Yeah. So hopefully I'll have a better grasp, especially since I've been reading all of this literature and and not well nonfiction specifically about racism and everything and color of law will give me a better background yes. too yes. On it. um and I, th- I i've been feeling the same way and 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 uh maybe this is a discussion for another time of like revisiting these things that i was reading in high school as well and like ethan from is a great example of it where like i totally understood that book more when we read it for this podcast mm-hmm. and really thought i enjoyed it more than i did when i was 15 and it's just then you start to think to yourself why do you assign that to 15 year olds you know but um because it's on a but you know what it is i think sometimes too stella i think it's a it's been um taught for years and years and years right so it's just one of those things where the the canon as it is hasn't really changed very much um and i can recommend a really great book to anybody who really wants to do a deep dive into like english education it's called letting go of literary whiteness and it's literally about curriculum and the whiteness of curriculum and how to change that because and how to diversify that and one of the points they make is not only has the curriculum been very dead very white and often very male it hasn't changed it's really old. Like if you go back through book lists now, thankfully we're getting more and more modern books, but the, the most current book when I was in high school in 1940, in 1995, um, was written in like the 1960s, you know, like, so it's like stuff doesn't change over years. So, uh, letting go of literary whiteness, it was a really, really good book for me. I had to read it for PD last year and, uh, I recommend it cause it's all about like changing, changing literature, but come back next month for a race in the sun. And uh, until then, uh, you can check us out on Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. And, uh, and don't forget to email in with your comments, uh, especially about night and, and, uh, and the curious incident. We'd love to hear about both. And until then, uh, thank you very much for listening and take care. 
And if you ever get arrested and find yourself in a jail cell, just magnify the sun onto your clothes, light yourself on fire. The police will come and get you out of there in time. You run off, you make a, you, you take a wee, make a wee on yourself and douse the flames and you'll be free. Take it from Christopher Boone. He knows what he's talking about. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> you had no idea what to do with that, did you? Oh, I never do, Stella. <laughs> Good night. Goodbye. Oh, boy. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.